Good morning, church. It's good to see each of you here today. I want to encourage you to take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 3. We'll be reading there in just a few moments. I want to thank all of you who volunteered last Sunday, Easter Sunday. As you know, we had services, three services in two different locations. And it takes a lot of volunteers to pull something like that off. And so I want to say thank you to those of you who volunteered and served last week. You made a difference. And I'm very, very grateful. I also want to encourage you. Tonight, our children at 6 o'clock are putting on their, their spring squared production. And you want to be here. Uh, normally, like Todd said, the set is usually ready to go, and I'm preaching with something with a lot, raises a lot of questions behind me. But not today. You're going to see that tonight, and we want you to come back and support our children and clap and cheer for them and praise them and encourage them uh, this evening at 6 o'clock. So we want to encourage you to come back. Every week for the last few weeks since about the middle of March, we have been studying some aspect of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 1.18, the apostle Paul's the one that said, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. That message, understood and received, has the power to change a human life. And today we're talking about the gospel on your need to change. And if you're here today and you've struggled with change, God has your number because we're going to talk about change today when we read in John 3 in just a few moments. As we've done each week, I've asked different members of our church family to come and share with us a little bit about how they have been changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And today, uh, I have my, my brother uh, Donnie with me today, and uh, his family's here with him. Susan is back there. Do you have some others with you? Dallas, one of, your, one of your sons. And his fiancée, Bridget. And his fiancée, Bridget. And so we're grateful all of them are here. Donnie is one of our deacons. He serves faithfully in our, in our deacon body and has served in a lot of different roles here in our church. But Donnie was not always this wonderful person that you see now. Was that Susan saying amen? Um, Donnie, tell, tell us, share with us how you came to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Okay, well, um, you know, I grew up uh, maybe different than a, than a lot of you. Uh, really had <clears throat> very little spiritual influence in my life uh, uh, when I was growing up. And, and so, you know, my lifestyle was reflective of the influences that I did have, which was basically the world um, and, and worldly people. So, you know, as a, as a young child and as a teenager and then on into college, uh, I pretty well just live a selfish lifestyle. Uh, basically, my only deterrent was uh, what I could do and, and not get caught. And, uh, and, and so, uh, you know, I knew, I knew who Jesus was from the fact that uh, he was born on Christmas and was resurrected on Easter, but really didn't know anything about a relationship with him. And so uh, lived that, that lifestyle until I was about 25, 26 years old. And, you know, even though I'd kind of turned my back on God, had no interest in him, uh, you know, he had a plan for my life. And I really didn't, didn't know about that. But uh, uh, when I was uh, about 25 years old, I was uh, uh, in a wedding 
uh, with a with a college uh, fraternity brother, and and uh, you know there was uh, you know there were always bridesmaids at these weddings, and uh, <coughs> you know when I was single, and and uh, there was one uh, bridesmaid there that caught my eye. She happened to be a dental hygienist, and and so uh, after that wedding, I be, began to call upon her, and uh, and so uh, uh, not long after. Uh, after that, we were married, and uh, that was Susan, by the way, if anybody wants to know. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> so uh, she was living in Conway, and I was, or Little Rock, and I was living in, uh, in Jonesboro. And, uh, we were going to move to Jonesboro, and, but she couldn't find a job in Jonesboro. But she found a job in Forest City. And so uh, after we were married, we moved to Wynn. We knew one couple that lived in Wynn at the time. And uh, had no idea, you know, uh, anything about when or what to expect. But we moved here and, and uh, you know, uh, started a family. Uh, my oldest son was born. And, and, and Susan would encourage me, you know, we need to go to church. And she'd speak to me about the Lord. And, and uh, I thought, eh, you know, probably a good thing. I'm married and got a job and starting a family. Probably going to church would be a good thing. And so we attended a church. It was actually a church of a, of a different denomination. And uh, we attended there regularly. And, and God just began to do some things in my life. I wasn't quite sure. And, and, and quite honestly, you know, up to that point in my life, I don't know that I'd ever heard the gospel. Um, and, and even at this other uh, place where we, we went, you know, I heard stories, but I don't know that I ever heard the gospel. Uh, but God was working in my life, and, and uh, so uh, there were a, <clears throat> uh, uh, a family here that, uh, you know, insurance salesmen, uh, you know, always like to call on new people in town. There was a guy named Van Baker that, that, that came to see me and wanted, to, wanted my insurance business, but they also invited me to church and invited me to play some basketball with he and some other guys, and, and so... Uh, did that, and and, uh, and his wife happened to be uh, my oldest uh, school teacher, and so we decided that we wanted to come over here and see what it was about at Wynn Baptist Church, and uh, so we came here in 1990, I believe, was the the first time we came, and, and uh, Van and Cindy met us at the door, and Cindy took Brian to Children's Church. Children's Church is a great thing, by the way, and uh, so we were able to worship here, and and then. Uh, it wasn't about a couple of weeks later, there was a knock on the door, and there was a, a, a guy at the door, and, and he said, I'm from Wynn Baptist Church, my name's Tommy Owens, and I'd like to talk to you about uh, uh, coming to visit my Sunday school class and, and talk to you about your relationship with Christ. And you know, I, you know, God was working in my life, but I still wasn't clear. Uh, but we started coming to church here, and, uh, and every week I began to hear the gospel. There was an interim pastor here, Wilbur Herring. I don't know how many of y'all remember Dr. Herring. Uh, and he could put a lot into a 20-minute sermon. Uh, but uh, on the last Sunday of his uh, ministry here, before Mark Talbert came to be our full-time pastor, uh, I came forward and accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior. And, and uh, we're, Susan and I were both baptized that night because she came from a different denomination. So, you know, it was the influence of, of my wife encouraging me and, and, and witnessing and uh, people like Van Baker and Tommy Owens who reached out and invited me to come and, and came to visit that, that uh, God used all that. And plus the, the gospel hmm. 
is mm. the power of salvation just as Amen. Well, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord for that. And so you came to know Christ as a young adult. Um, Donnie, what, in the 25, 6, 7 years since that happened, how has Jesus changed your life? Well, I'd like to say that I've lived a perfect, sinless life since then. We know better. But that hadn't happened. <laughs> you know, when you live 25, 27 years in a worldly fashion, uh, you know, there's a lot of stuff that God's got to change. Uh, and he began to change that uh, immediately upon the time that I was, I was saved. And, uh, you know, one of the first things that happened, I think, was, for me, a great discipleship opportunity was uh, Richard Tobin came to me and asked me to go on a mission trip uh, to Venezuela. And there were some really uh, strong uh, men on that trip, uh, Richard, uh, Rick Proctor, Tommy Owens, Mike Argo, uh, George Connor was on that trip, even though he was... Uh, going to church in Forest City at the time. And so just, uh, you know, as a young believer and going on that trip, you know, really began to, began to see, uh, you know, what spiritual maturity looked like in some older men. Uh, and, and so that was a, a, a great thing. But God just began to chip away at, you know, the, the, the sin and the baggage and the things that, uh, that I needed to, you know, quit doing. And not only things I need to quit doing, but things I needed to start doing. And, and that was, you know, uh, spending time in prayer, praying for my family, you know, getting involved in church, not only coming and, and being, uh, you know, sitting and listening, but also being a part of discipling others. Amen. Well, very good. Well, I am so thankful that God has changed your life, Donnie. I'd like to pray with you as we've been doing and, and uh, thank the Lord for his work in your life and for the testimony that you have of his power to change a human heart. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you, Lord, so much for Donnie Johnston and his wife and his family. We praise you, Lord, that, that you saw his need and you surrounded him with those who would tell the truth and would share the message in such a way that he could hear it and see it in their lives. We thank you, Father, for the, the transformation the miracle of grace that's standing next to me. And Father, I know that sitting here this morning, there are men and women, boys and girls who hear this and they're, they're laying their life and their story alongside the story they've just heard and they're asking questions. And I pray for that dear one that needs Jesus and that wants to know him and that wants to change in the way that you have changed Donnie. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come and speak to us and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, and thank, thank you, Donnie, for sharing with us. Change is something that our entire culture is vitally interested in. If you go to the, a bookstore, if you can find a real bookstore anymore, but if you go to a brick-and-mortar bookstore where they have books on the shelves, uh, you'll have a large section devoted to what they call self-help. There's an interest in change, and there's an interest in improving yourself, whether it's physically or emotionally or intellectually. There's a deep interest in change that's running all through our culture. There's an interest in changing our society as a whole, not just as individuals, but we want to see change in, in our culture. We want to see change in our ethics and our morals. We want to see change in our government and and the attitude that our society has towards division and towards one another. And so there's a deep interest in change.
Years ago, I read a number of psychologists who were talking about change, and, and I looked for the motivations that people have for change. And as I looked at the different lists, I was able to boil it down to basically two things. People change for basically two reasons. One is it hurts. Hurts so bad, I've got to. The other one is some kind of desirable future, and I want it bad enough to change. And so those are two motivations. So desirable future would be like a self-improvement, where I admire somebody. I admire their skills, their knowledge, their abilities, and I want to be like that person. And so I want to change for a positive reason, a desirable future. I want to retire someday, and, and so I change my spending habits, or I change other things in my, my finances so that I can do, achieve this desirable future. Others of us change because it hurts so bad. There's something wrong in my life. There's something wrong in my marriage or in my relationships. Or I'm struggling with something that's overwhelming me, a sin habit, an addiction. And, and it hurts so bad I've got to. And I reach out for help. And I reach for someone who can help me. But the motivation for change is because I'm hurting and pain. I want you to know this morning that it's possible to even have those motivations and not change in the way that is truly everlasting or truly eternal. You can turn over a new leaf. You can lose weight. You can learn a new skill. You can acquire new habits. But those are insufficient to change the thing that needs to change most inside of you. And we want to talk about that this morning. <coughs> you need to know, excuse me, <coughs> the very heart of being a Christian in any church the very heart of being a Christian is about change. And if you're a Christian and you're not changing, if you're a Christian and you're not at all interested in change, something is terribly wrong. Something is missing in your life. So I want to call attention today to John chapter 3, where Jesus meets a man named Nicodemus. John 3, verse 1. And here's what the Bible says. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. Now immediately we see Nicodemus is a, is a gracious kind of a man. He addresses Jesus as Rabbi. And, and so he's giving Jesus some credit. He's giving him some points. He's treating him with respect. It's a very generous remark in light of the difference between Nicodemus and Jesus socially. And I'll say a word about that in a moment. But something else this says about Nicodemus is that he was hungry for something. He, he was searching for something. Jesus obviously was being greatly used by God. And because of that, he wanted to know more about Jesus. He wanted to know who he was, what he was teaching, what the significance of his message. And he was interested in learning more. Now Nicodemus, because of the language that's used here in this text, we know some other things about him. We know that he was a Pharisee. Pharisee was someone who was very conservative in a religious sense. He knew the Old Testament thoroughly. He could quote large sections of it. He understood all the, the minute laws and details of the rules that were given in some of the Old Testament books, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. He knew all that stuff. And, and he was part of a, a group within Judaism 
that made it their mission to help others to understand the truth and to live by the standard of God's Word. They were the source of all of the little laws that weren't written in the Bible, but that were designed to help you keep the big laws in the Scripture. He was a Pharisee. It says he was a ruler among them. We discover later on that he was a member of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the the greatest, uh, highest, most influential body of religious leaders in ancient Israel. It was a group, the numbers varied, but there was a group usually of 71 men, and so it was a very small group, and it was based on the allocation of leadership that Moses instituted after the Red Sea crossing. He established himself as the ultimate authority, but he established groups of men over groups of people. There were little Sanhedrins in every village, groups of men who made decisions and passed judgments, but then there was this great Sanhedrin, and this man was part of the big one, and so he had great authority. He was an educator. He was a professor of religion, if you will. He was also successful. We know this because later in his life, in John 19, after the crucifixion, he was one of just two men who came and brought spices and very expensive materials to help bury Jesus inside the tomb. He was a man of means because he was able to bring those resources to the burial. He was successful. So he was a very moral man and very religious. And he comes to Jesus and he calls him rabbi. He's generous, but he's also hungry. Now, how does Jesus respond to this man? I tell you, if he was an average Baptist preacher and he came down the aisle during the invitation, we would have signed him up. I mean, this guy was open. He was interested. I would have answered his questions and I would have helped him. But Jesus says something to him. That if you're interested in change today, you need to hear what Jesus says to him. John 3, verse 3, Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. It's kind of striking, isn't it? It's unexpected. In fact, it almost maybe even seems a little rude to our ears. Here this man comes, he's being gracious, he's being humble, he's a man of great authority, he's a dignitary, he's an educator, he's a professor. Let me tell you what Jesus is not saying in this moment when he says that unless one is born again, he can't see the kingdom of God. What Jesus is not saying, first of all, he's not saying, I want you to become a highly religious and moral person. Because Nicodemus already was. So, so many times we think that if someone is going to be born again, it's because they are in desperate straits. We talk about people who are in, on the streets. We talk about people who are in jails. We talk about those people. They need to be born again. But Nicodemus is not the kind of person we would think of as needing the new birth. And, and sometimes we reduce the new birth to people who really are in trouble. But Nicodemus doesn't seem to be like that. And so he's challenging the traditional notion of what it means to be religious. I'm not calling you to be religious, Jesus is saying. I'm not calling you to keep all the rules. You need to be born again. Let me tell you something else he's not saying. Jesus is not saying, I want you to become a highly well-adjusted, kind, generous, pulled together, and successful man. You know how I know that? Because he already was. He was a kind man, he was a gracious man, he was a generous man, 
He had a humble spirit. He wasn't haughty. He was successful already. He had it made. He didn't need a self-help course and any of those things. And so Jesus wasn't calling him to that. He wasn't calling him to be religious, wasn't calling him to be a a self-help example, to go on a motivational speaking circuit. He He was making a point that if a man like this needed something else, so do you and so do I. To be born again is something that every person in this room needs. Every person here needs a new birth. It's universal. No one here escapes the need for what Jesus is talking about in this moment. Being born again is for everybody. Everybody needs to change. Well, Nicodemus is naturally confused by this. And maybe you are too. I thought being a Christian meant coming forward during a service. Well, that's one of the things that may happen. I thought being a Christian was being baptized. And we, we've seen baptism after baptism, week after week, for weeks since mid-January. I thought that's what being a Christian was about. But Jesus didn't say a word about baptism. He is talking about something that Nicodemus is struggling now to understand. Listen to what happens next in verse 4. Nicodemus, professor, successful, cultured. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? I mean, he's taking him literally, isn't he? Born again? You mean I got to somehow, I don't know how to do that. Jesus answered, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So Jesus is telling us two things. In verse 3, he tells us what needs to happen. In verse 5, he's telling us how it happens. So let's take those two questions, really. What needs to happen? And let's tackle verse 3, first of all. What needs to happen? Verse 3. Well, verse 3, he said, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He's essentially saying, Nicodemus, you need to be born again. You need to start over. You need to start over. Now, you know, that would make sense if he was talking to someone on the street or someone in jail or someone in in rehab, but he's talking to Nicodemus. If we were talking to one of those other folks, we would say, your record is terrible. Nothing that you've done is going to help you. None of it counts. And they would say, yes, I agree. My life is messed up. None of that counts. None of that is helping me. None of that is making me a better person. I need to change. But he's saying this to Nicodemus. You expect him to say to someone like Nicodemus, Nicodemus, you're making real progress. You have really made some fine steps forward. Uh, But friend, there's another level. You know, you think he's talking about something that's incremental. And so he's made this this distance, and everybody else has just made a little little progress, but Nicodemus is over here. You expect him to be talking in those terms. He's saying, no, Nicodemus, nothing, nothing, nothing that you have done up to this moment matters. Your first birth and everything associated with that birth is inadequate to change your life. You have all of these other things, but it's meaningless. You need to start over. You need a new beginning. You know, before chapter 3 starts, and in the earliest versions of the Bible, 
there were no chapter divisions, no verses. Those were added later, okay? So these divisions are not inspired. I want you to look at the very end of chapter 2. This is not on the screen, but the last few verses of chapter 2, I want you to see what, what's being said there. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, it says, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. Verse 24, but Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. Next verse, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. Nicodemus is an example of what he's just been talking about in chapter 2. There were people who were believing in him, people who were responding to him, but it says Jesus did not commit himself to them. That word commit is the same word in the original language as the word believe that's used in the previous verse. These people believed in him, but Jesus did not believe in them. Why? Because he knew what was in them. There was something wrong inside of them. There was something broken, something missing. There was a great big issue on the inside. And this is a problem, I believe, with a lot of us. If we're not careful, if we're looking at the wrong thing, many in churches will profess that they believe in Jesus Christ. They'll say the words. If you pin them down, nail them out in the street, talk to them and have a private, oh yes, I was I, put, I believed in Jesus Christ in such and such a year, and I walked down the aisle, and I took the preacher's hand, and I was baptized. It says here, many people believed in him. But then you look at their life a little bit closer, and nothing's changed. They may even attend a church, but nothing's changed. They go to work, they're the same person they were. They go to school, they're the same person that they were. And on the outside, they may look even to us like they're nice people, they're okay people, they may look like Nicodemus, they may be cultured, they may be refined, they may be successful, they may have cleaned up their act, but that person knows on the inside that there's something wrong with their heart, that there are things that they are thinking, things that motivate them, and they know it's not of God. In, um, in Mark's gospel, and this happens in a couple of places in the scripture, but in Mark's gospel, they were having a debate about dietary laws, dietary laws, what to eat, what not to eat. We still talk about diets a lot today, don't we? And they were talking about what is okay to eat and what's not okay to eat. And Jesus sort of shut the whole conversation down. Listen to what he says. This is Mark chapter 7, verse 20. You can just write it down. Mark 7, verse 20, what comes out of a man, that defiles a man. For from within, out of the heart of men, listen, out of the heart of men proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murderers, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness, and these evil things come from within and defile a man. You hear what comes out of that heart? You see, that's why Jesus didn't commit himself to those that said, I believe, I believe, and there's been no change. 
and, and, and they may clean up their act a little bit, but they know in their heart of hearts, they know what kind of person that they are. And the issue is that on the heart level, I can't touch that. There's nothing I can do about my heart. I'm born with this heart. It is what I am from my first birth. And something different is needed. There's a problem with the first birth. And it's a problem of sin that has captivated the human heart. It's the problem of self. There's a vision issue. Jesus said, unless a man is born again, he cannot see, cannot see the kingdom of God. What is he saying? I can't see, I can't comprehend the rule of God, the reign of God. What God wants, what pleases God, who God is, I'm blind to that. I don't hear him. I'm not, I'm not comprehending what he's about. And what's going on in my heart is I'm doing what I want to do. Now, we understand the self-rule that expresses itself as running over other people. We understand that, don't we? That's what criminals are about, ultimately. It's the ultimate expression of I want what I want, and I want it now. I'll take it from you. I'll hurt you. I'll do whatever it takes. And that's a kind of expression of self-rule. That is a self-rule that hurts people. There's another kind of self-rule, and that's a self-rule that helps people. You say, Pastor, what in the world are you talking about? I'm talking about a self-rule that says I'm going to do good, I'm going to help people, I'm going to get all the creds that I can. Why? Because it's about me, and I want to be the right kind of person. I want to, I want to look good, I want to sound good, I want to be good, and it's all about this self-rule still. It's about me. So there's a self-rule that helps. There's a self-rule that hurts. The problem is the self-rule is about being obsessed with one's self. And, and something has to happen to move self out of the controlling influence of your life, self out of the controlling influence of your heart. Self has to be dethroned in order to see or comprehend the rule of God. The old birth is inadequate. That's what has to happen. And the old birth has to be addressed and the only way it can be addressed is with a new birth. If you're going to see, you need a new birth. So the first question, what needs to happen? There needs to be a new birth. Number two, how does it happen? This is what Jesus explains in verse 5. How does it happen? Uh, verse 4, Jesus answered, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, you need the Holy Spirit to change you. The most neglected person of the Trinity. You need the Holy Spirit. You can't change by yourself. You can't change your heart. You can't make up light in a place that's dark. You can't insert the rule of God where there's no presence of God. You need the Holy Spirit, Nicodemus. You need two births. He says you need a birth that involves water. That's physical birth. And I know some people have different interpretations of that. But if you look at that word of in the verse, the word of, I would circle it. That word of means a point of origination. You have to be born of water. It originates from water. In ancient times, that's what they saw. Here comes water, here comes the baby. And so born of or originating from water, and then uh, that's physical birth, and then of the spirit, born of water and the spirit. 
You have to have both births. And you say, well, pastor, that goes without saying. Well, Nicodemus didn't understand it. So Jesus is making it perfectly clear. Born of water and the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the origin of an entirely new kind of relationship with God. He's the only way you can have this new kind of relationship with God. Now, I'm not talking about a relationship of, um, of social interaction. Hello, God. This is Don again. I'm not talking about that kind of relationship. I'm talking about a relationship of kinship. I'm not, uh, I, have a, I, have a, I have a daughter here today. I have a relationship socially. I interact with lots of people. I even interact with my daughter. He's not talking about that. He's talking about a relationship that involves kinship. Birth causes you to be related. You with me? It's kinship. In John chapter 1, verse 12, the very, uh, just a few chapters before this, here's what John writes about this. And he's helping you and I understand that the Holy Spirit is the origin of a new kind of relationship with God. John chapter 1, verse 12. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right or the power, or the authority to become children of God to those who are believing or who believe in his name, who were born, not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. You see that? So here's a person who receives or welcomes Jesus Christ. They, they continue believing in him, which we're going to talk about that in a moment. And the consequence of that is there's been this new birth, born of God. Not something I do, not something I get as an inheritance because my daddy knew God or my grandfather knew God, but because I've been born of God. And so I have a physical birth and I have a spiritual birth. And it's a very definite point in time. And it's, and it's very real and it changes everything about your relationship. He becomes your father and you become his son or his daughter. It's a relationship. And the Holy Spirit is the originator of that. So how does the new birth happen? He goes on and explains in verse 6, John 3, verse 6, that which is born in the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel, I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now, my wife, when it comes to birthing babies, is an expert. You don't have to ask her. I'll show you six birth certificates. She's an expert. When we first began to have children, we took classes. And um, as if that was going to change a whole lot, but it really, it really helped. She learned how to do this. This is not natural childbirth. Natural childbirth is very loud and uncomfortable. Natural, loud, and uncomfortable. You with me? This is prepared childbirth, and so she studied. She's coached other women. She's taught other women how to do this, and, and, um, and so she's there. And, and my goodness, I watched these babies come one after another. I was there. I was present. I was there. I think if a guy is interested enough to be there at the beginning, he ought to be there at the end. Amen? <laughs> Amen? The very first baby, I thought we were going to lose baby and mom. Going to lose both of them. It was difficult. It was hard. Uh, baby number three, he was so big, 
They brought people in from all the, over the hospital to watch this lady who wasn't having a C-section. This baby was big. Um, I think he broke a collarbone just get him out. He was big. Uh, baby uh, number four had a cord wrapped around his neck. And uh, he wasn't happy about that, but he, there was nothing he could do. And we got him out safely. Uh, baby number five, I think the doctor, he was late. And uh, they were saying, wait, wait, ha. Huh. Ha. <laughs> huh. He finally got there, pushed on her stomach a couple times, thinks he did something, and wrote an invoice for that. <laughs> the point is, every birth is a near-death experience. I mean, we don't, we don't have a conception of that now in our culture, but women... Women have died giving birth to children through the centuries. And every woman takes a foot and she steps into another world when she's at that, that moment. And, and if you know much about childbirth, there is a moment. You know, somewhere between 8 and 10 centimeters. If you don't understand that, go ask your mom. But there's a personality change. <laughs> so they sit up in bed and the head spins around. And uh, it's rough. It's hard. And, of course, I always acted as an advocate, and I'd, you know, what are you doing? You, help. I'd start telling the nurses what to do, and I knew how to work those beds better than they did. And I'd give them direction. I had to apologize, I think, to every nursing group that ever was helpful with one of our babies because I would get so wound up. Now, listen, I've been present at all six births. I saw the agony. I saw the blood. I saw the sweat. I saw the tears. And I can tell you with all authority, not one of those babies was born by their own effort. Not one. They had absolutely nothing to do with their own birth. When the Bible talks about you and I being born again, it's something that God does in your heart. It's something that God accomplishes. I cannot make myself born again. I can wish it, I can want it, but it's just like a baby's born the first time. They have nothing to do with that first birth. And in many ways, you cannot cause your second birth. It's something that's a work of God. You need to be born again. The flesh produces flesh, which is a likeness to its parent. You always see the little babies, and we always stand around, and we look at the babies and say, well, I think it looks like the mom. I think it looks like the dad, whatever the case is. And we, we talk about that. But the Holy Spirit, He alone produces spirit people who are going to eventually take on a likeness to their Heavenly Father and a likeness to Jesus Christ. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. I want to share some verses with you. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 1 describes the fallout of the new birth. 1 Corinthians 6 1 says, But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. You understand what he's saying? That when a person becomes a Christian, truly becomes a Christian, that the Holy Spirit of God has come in and merged with that human spirit. That's what the text says. They become one spirit with him. They're not two spirits, just the human spirit and the Holy Spirit. They become merged. And, and because of that, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. A new creation. He, he is talking about the word that's used to describe the kind of creation that took place in Genesis 1. And so when a person becomes a Christian, they're not just joining a church. They are being recreated into a new species of being. God created animals. He created human beings on that first day, on those early days of creation. But when a person comes to Christ, creation happens again. 
and that man, that woman becomes a new creature in Christ. Galatians 2.20, Paul describes the fallout of this, the after effects of this. And he says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but who? Christ lives in me. Now you can't tell me that the Savior we celebrated last Sunday, who came out of the grave, who defeated, arrested death, we just sang about that, who arrested death, that that Savior can dwell in a human heart and that human heart not change over time. And so the new birth is about change. It's a work of the Holy Spirit, and those effects become clear in time. He said the, the working of the Holy Spirit, a person born of the Spirit, he said it's like the wind. You go outside right now, it's windy. And you can feel the wind. You can hear the wind, but you can't see the wind. And he said the Holy Spirit's like that. When he comes and takes up residence in your heart, uh, you may not have a dramatic experience, or you might, but as the Holy Spirit begins to work in you, uh, the change is real, and you begin to think different thoughts, you begin to have different desires, you begin to lose interest in some things like Donnie talked about, you begin to want to do other things. Those changes, those shifts of the heart, that doesn't come from the human heart, that comes from the Holy Spirit of God at work in a person. So if the Holy Spirit does this, what can you do? What can you do? Well, in the same passage of Scripture, as Jesus continues to talk to Nicodemus. And listen, Nicodemus, he had a hard time. I, don't, I, don't, I can't tell you that Nicodemus was born again and saved at this moment. I can't tell you that in John 7, he's beginning to speak up for Jesus. I can tell you in John 19 that he partners with Joseph of Arimathea and he goes to the tomb and he doesn't care who sees, he doesn't care who knows. He identifies with this man they just crucified and put to death and he prepares his body for burial. This man became a believer. This man was changed. This man was born again. And later on, Jesus is talking to him in the same conversation. And in John 3, verse 14, I want you to see something, and then we're going to close. John 3, verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. Now, Jesus was talking to a religious professor. You understand that? And the story he is referring to occurs in Numbers chapter 21. You can read that later today. But the people of God were being rebellious in the wilderness. And God sent uh, serpents among them with a deadly bite, venom. It's going to kill them. And people are dying. And in order to rescue them, the cure was that Moses made a pole, and he put a serpent on it, and he held it up. And all you had to do, if you were dying, you've been bitten and you were dying, all you had to do was look at that pole. All you had to do was look at it. You couldn't do anything else for yourself. All you could do was look at it. Now listen, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. There's your blood, sweat, and tears that enables the new birth for you. That whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And then he says the verse, many of you know, for God so loved, that's his passion. He so loved the world, he loved you. 
that he gave his only begotten son. That's his provision for you. Christ on the cross dying for you. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's his purpose in sending Christ for you to die on the cross is that you would know him. And by believing in him, trusting him, surrendering your life to him, you can be born again and your life can be changed, transformed. Now what does that require? That means I've got to completely turn away from, we call this repentance, I've got to turn away from my sin, my self-rule, my ownership of my life and my future. I've got to turn away from that. I've got to repent of trying to run my own life and turn to God and put my trust in Him to guide me. Then I begin to see the kingdom. Then I begin to understand His rule. Then I begin to understand a whole lot more because the Holy Spirit begins to work in me. Now, sometimes we look at that transformation, we look at that process and we say, I can't handle it. That's too much for me. I talked to a guy, a, a dear person to me years ago, who's practically living on the streets. And one day I just felt led of God to call him up, to contact him, and, and we met somewhere to eat. And he's sitting across the table from me, and I'm looking at him, and I share the gospel with him, what Jesus did for him what Jesus wants to do for him. And I share the good news with him. And when we get done, I said, would you like to pray and ask Jesus Christ to come live in your heart to be your Lord and to be your Savior? He said, no, I don't. And I said, why? He said, it's too much to give up. Most honest answer I think I've ever gotten. Too much to give up. He had nothing. He's practically living on the street. But he understood that the turn to Christ meant giving up the control, giving up the rule, giving up the reins of his own life. And he said, that's too much for me. You might sit here today and say, it's too much, Pastor. I can't do it. I can't give up the control of my life. Others of you are ready. And you're saying, I'm ready to trust Christ as my Lord and Savior. I know I need a new heart. I know I need Jesus to come live inside of me. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? I'd like to lead you in a very brief prayer. And it's not the prayer that saves, it's the, the truthfulness of the prayer as you pray it in your own heart. And the prayer to ask Jesus to come in might go something like this. Father, I realize now that I am truly lost that everything I've done to this moment in my life is not enough to save my soul or change me. I realize that I don't have a relationship with you and I need you. Not just to be able to talk to you when I'm in trouble, but I want to be your son, I want to be your daughter, and I want you to change me. And so, Lord, I come to you not based on anything that I've done, but I realize now that you provided your son for me, that he died for me. And Lord, as best I know how, I trust all I am into your hands. And I want you to save me, change me, 
make me new on the inside. And I ask this in Jesus' name.